and welcome to another season of the APG podcast. My name is Bogdana Budnar, and together with colleagues from agencies all over the UK, I will be hosting the second season of the podcast. The APG podcast kicked off last year with a series focused on the 50th anniversary of planning. Presented by Russell Davis, the series included seven episodes for planners, planning directors and CSOs answered four questions about their favorite piece of advertising. You can find that season on SoundCloud, iTunes or Stitcher, or just head to the APG website at apg.org.uk forward slash podcast. We're kicking off season two with a series of podcasts looking at how to put people back into planning. We will be exploring everything from cultural immersion and new research techniques powered by data to the impact of semiotics and the uses and misuses of big data to understand what makes people tick. For our first episode, we spoke to Dougal Shaw. A Cambridge graduate, Dougal joined the BBC as a researcher and trained himself to become a new breed of journalist, one whose primary tool is his mobile phone. We thought Dougal would make a perfect first guest not only because he interrogates and immerses himself in modern culture, but also because his unmediated relationship with his subjects can teach us a thing or two about new techniques of observation and inside discovery. Finally, we also enjoyed his frank musings on popular and digital culture, which he also shared with us in the podcast. So now, let's jump into this conversation with Dougal Shaw. I'm here talking to Dougal Shaw and Dougal, let me first say thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast. I've given you a bit of an intro at the start, but I'd like you to tell our listeners a bit about what you do and why it's different in the world of journalism. So I, I call it pocket to pocket journalism because, or P2P to use kind of marketing language, because what I've found is that um, Obviously, the phone begins its its journey in my pocket. That's the device I use to record the story. But when someone then goes on to watch the story and engage with it, they're going to use, you know, not a television these days, but a mobile phone, which exists in their pocket. So it's like it's gone from my pocket to theirs in the journey from me, the storyteller, to them, uh, the audience, the, con- the consumer. And basically, I've been using my mobile phone now for three years and it kind of happened because I was a producer who just who le- wanted to learn how to film and how to edit. And about 10 years ago, quite a lot of people were making that journey because uh, the cameras had got cheaper and they'd become easier to use. So that's what I, I did at first. And it took, it took two or three years, but I became quite competent at filming and editing. But what I did find at the same time was that when you're a video journalist, you're working on your own most of the time. So it's very heavy to carry around all the camera kit. It's not, it's not just the camera and all the lenses and the batteries. It's a big tripod that goes with it. So I was always jealous of the radio journalists who were far more nimble and they just had a kind of small rucksack with all their equipment that, that they needed. So I think it was about the time of the iPhone 5, maybe um, about four or five years ago, that it, it was starting to become apparent that the, the video camera was filming in you know HD and above, and it was really good quality. And that first made me think about, well, could, could I just do more on the mobile phone? It'd be so much lighter. For a long time, I used it as a second camera just to get more interesting shots, but still using my big heavy main camera. But I slowly realized through all the editing that the footage I was getting through the phone was just, I could hardly tell the difference. And I thought I, just, I might as well switch to that. So I did a thing called a, a mojo diet. Mojo is a hashtag that means mobile journalism. And if you search on Twitter or Facebook, you'll see lots of people like me will, will tweet their stories with, with that hashtag. 
Um, and I, I made the transition to that. So for three years, I've done everything on the mobile phone. And the big reason to begin with was, as I said, practical, just to make my, my life easier. But what I found was the big change that came was actually emotional. It was about the reaction of the people I was interviewing because most of my stories come from people who haven't been media trained. They haven't, um, you know, done stories in news before. It's probably the first time they've been in a, in a news report. But I know this because they told me afterwards they had been extremely nervous about speaking to me and being recorded. But when they saw I was doing it with a phone, an object that they were very familiar with, identified with, had used themselves, they all of a sudden relaxed. And if you have a relaxed contributor, that makes such a huge difference because it means they're ready to tell their story in an authentic, compelling way rather than being kind of, you know, rabbits scared in the headlights. So that's so then it became a combination. Yes, more practical to film with a phone, much lighter kit, but also I'm getting much, much better stories I found with real kind of emotional resonance. And when you capture those emotional moments, then people will in turn respond to that on social media platforms and it, it becomes something very um, shareable. Yeah, I think you've preempted one of my questions with, with that reply there, because there's a very interesting parallel between what you were saying and a bit of the job that we do as, as planners, where in the past, a lot of the research was done in focus groups and kind of face-to-face meetings where people were just sat around a table and it was very institutional setting. So people felt a bit uneasy and a bit anxious about giving the right answers, but this less less mediated relationship, more equal to equal, feels like it's going to be conducive to more interesting conversation. So to follow on that, what I'd like to ask you is, are you also finding that doing this kind of journalism takes you to other type of stories? So for me, my favorite way to get original features that are going to do really well on social media is to crowdsource stories because humans are basically interested in other humans and the kind of choices that we make. So that's a great starting point for any story. One thing I always make sure I do when I make a feature for BBC News website or um, or for the news app is that at the bottom of every story, I've got my Twitter handle, which is at Dougal Shaw BBC or my email address, because I want somebody who reads the story who's moved or has a reaction and wants to talk about you know, their reaction, I want them to be able to contact me because that could be a lead to my next story. And some of my very best things that I've done, that have, the stories that have done really well, have come about that way. So for me, that's a, crowdsourcing is just the most important way um, to find your next story. And, and actually, I did a whole series which was based on that premise, which was called My Shop for the BBC uh, Business Unit. And my shop briefly was kind of meant to be a bit like Humans of New York, um, which if you've seen that on Facebook is a very popular strand where a photographer in New York just said, if you stop anyone in the street, take a picture of them and get them to talk about their lives, you'll find that absolutely everyone is interesting. Everyone has a story to them. So I did something slightly similar, but I did it in video form and I did it about small independent shops um, because I thought any, any independent shop is a kind of passion project for the shopkeeper. So for that, for that one, I think I did about two or three, which were shops I just found myself. But then after, very quickly, the series looked after itself because I'd had my email address at the bottom and both shopkeepers, but also lots of customers would contact me and say, oh, you've got to come up to, uh, you know, Plymouth to see this shop. I love it. And, and, and here's why. So I was absolutely inundated with ideas. And that's just, for me, the, the best way to find original stories as well that other people haven't got. And so much in the modern digital space, 
because so many people make videos these days, it's not just the traditional media outlets. It's absolutely, you know, anyone can make stuff now that it's very hard to find content that's original. And I think when a lot of people see stories on, um, on, on Facebook or of Twitter, you just kind of scroll on because everything feels like almost like a meme like you've seen it before and, or some similar version. So you really want to find something original. So you've told me about the tools you use, your mobile. You've told me a bit about how you get your stories and how crowdsourcing those stories actually helps a lot. Do you think that there's something about the way you personally interact with people that actually helps you get the, the, this interesting content? Do you have a, a system of talking to people, of how you approach them? What, what have you found when it comes to the softer skills of this job? Yeah, I mean, it's not a deliberate system, I'd say, but maybe it's something if I reflected, but I can, I can kind of recognize... But the first thing is that um, I, sup- I think I've heard people like Louis Theroux and, and some other good journalists saying this, but um, I don't mean to be, but I think my style is quite bumbling and it's and I might be sort of um, <laughs> not succeeding in setting up my kit properly or something's going wrong, um, which is absolutely genuine because a lot of the time when you're doing the work yourself as a one man band, things can get quite overwhelming. But I think that probably means that people see you as someone who's um, who's not kind of ruthless or this uh, intimidating TV person, but someone who's even you know worried about failing themselves. So if you can be this slightly bumbling character, um, which in my case is authentic, kind of Inspector Clouseau thing, that's not it doesn't have to uh, hold you back. It can be in some ways quite a good thing. But yeah, basically, I've been working as a video journalist for just over a decade now. So a lot of the hard skills of filming, of knowing how to get the lighting right, the audio good, uh, all these kind of practical things. Now it's kind of like the, the, you know, the back of my brain can take care of those things. I don't have to think about it too much. And that frees up mental space to focus on the soft skills. And that's really the part of the job I find most satisfying. And that's when you're almost like being a... I don't know, a kind of doctor or a psychologist or a, a police detective. You're just you're with someone who you, who you haven't had much time to build up a rapport with, but you've got to let them trust you. Um, you've got to work out when they're ready to tell you about something, when they're not ready to tell you about something, when something's too painful to talk about, when something might be difficult to talk about, but they're just approaching the right moment where they're going to be happy to do it. And not just open up to you as a person, but um, I mean, not just open up to you to do a a news report so that, you know, after you've done this, lots of people are going to see it, but open up to you individually as a person. So when those moments really work, that can be the most satisfying part of the job for me these days. All right. Thank you for that. So you've told me how you work. Let's move on to some of the things that you've seen. So you are often appearing on on panels and you're particularly interested in how digital shapes culture around us. So what do you think are the most striking changes or trends that you've you've uh, noticed? I guess the bigger picture of what I've noticed, um, and if I sort of step back a bit and reflect, is that if you look back to the 20th century and the kind of bigger trends taking place, it was to, you kind of see like a breakdown of community in a lot of ways and the atomization of our lives, especially with people moving to big mega cities, um, maybe older forms of community breaking down a bit. And in a way, at first I thought with, with the internet and social media, it might be kind of like a way to counteract that. And, and sometimes I think the internet and social media does counteract that, that you see this kind of longing for a sense of community and on a lot of forums and on Twitter and on, on you know, Facebook groups that form, 
you do see see people fulfilling that longing and, and getting a sense of community. But the kind of downside to that that I see at the moment, I don't know if it will change, is that it's quite a tribal, almost primitive tribal sense of community where everyone's kind of banding together around small conversations about people who have the same interests as them. And it, beca- it can become a place that's quite quite dogmatic conversations that easily move to extremes and exclude other people. And one interesting challenge will be to see if there will be kind of online communities that can be formed where there is a range of opinions and differences celebrated but that doesn't seem to be happening too much at the moment when i look at younger people i can definitely understand this this whole idea of millennial burnout and i mean this is more from just people i know at work who are in their sort of 20s early 30s even but they are they are fixated on their phones. I mean, I mean, I am as well, and I feel quite guilty about that, especially now that I have children, because I can see how it affects young, you know, the children at the very youngest age. But we are all hooked on our phones. I see you have conversations with people, and they think nothing of checking their phone, not you know, doing any eye contact with you while having a conversation with you. And they, they don't even think that's rude. That's just normal now. But that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg that you're seeing. People are just living their lives online, and the thing that um, affects their self-worth and their, self, their identity is is their online image. And if you think of all the magazines that we, we grew up with in the 80s and 90s, like OK Magazine, Hello Magazine, and the kind of the way that they allowed celebrities to portray their lives, it's like that's become now the average person has to be their own paparazzi. They have to be constantly <laughs> branding themselves and telling them their own amazing life and selling it to other people in this really... Really, quite fictitious, over over the top way, and I think that puts a lot of pr- uh, pressure on people. I also sort of wonder. And I don't know the answer to this, but have people kind of got a bit nastier and and stuff? Because you see a lot of vicious behaviour online, or was that kind of always there to a certain extent? And it's just because of things like Twitter that you can see that for the first time. But there always was this kind of seething, angry resentment happening beneath politics. And I don't know the answer to that. I'd like to think it was always just there. I do notice as well that on the platforms where you can be anonymous, like Twitter, like YouTube, where you know you can make up your name on that, you don't have to have your your face on it, or even always, you know, give a, a an email, correct email address. That on those platforms where people can be anonymous, that's when all the nasty stuff comes out, and because people have a kind of mask on, they're behind this electronic veil, and they feel this license to let out stuff that they're probably ashamed of themselves. Whereas Facebook does seem to be a bit more civil, simply because. People know they're making comments that their friends in real life will see, and usually, you know, it's in their own real name and and with with a picture as well. So, those are things that I think about quite a lot. The other one that I spot through the stories that I cover is that anything to do with convenience and using the phone, then millennials absolutely love it, and it will kind of make sense to them in a sense that it, it won't necessarily make sense to um, an older person. So one example is the story I'm working on that will have come out by the time this podcast goes out about um, a business in London where it delivers haircuts to wherever you are, whether you're at work on a lunch break or to your house. And you might think, okay, that works for delivery of Uber Eats for delivering for delivering food, but would you really want a hairdresser brought to your house? That sounds crazy. But it's doing it's already doing very well. It's a huge investment, and a lot of millennials just think, yeah, I'm not going to go to a barber shop and waste my time waiting around. I'll, if it comes to me, I'll even pay a bit extra for, for that. So it's all about convenience and the and just the kind of common sense idea that if you can organize it on your phone, it must be a good thing. 
I also, I sometimes wonder, I mean, a lot of these changes to internet culture are obviously universal because the internet is a global thing. But sometimes I, I do wonder if, if it's affected us in Britain that we did used to be this country that could, famous for its good sense of humor, that we could smile about things. And now I think we're, our sort of default reaction is to scowl rather than to smile. We've become just sort of really quite angry about everything. And maybe before we were more sort of cheerful and we, we kind of applauded the eccentric. Now it's just we kind of want to shut things down and, and get the anger out. And But again, it goes back to that question. I don't know. Is that That's what it feels like if you're on Twitter and you're kind of following conversations. But has that always been there and it's just because of Twitter we notice it or is it a new thing? I don't know. But I am worried about that, that we might have, that actually might have changed our, social media might have changed our whole national character. And there's a few other things I see from other journalists and and just friends as well that I think it can, it, the more you start to live your life online, it, it can affect your real life behavior. And people start, when you have conversations with them, I think they've kind of, I notice they've become more extreme in, you know, any kind of conversation you have with them, that they'll, they'll have really strong views about something, it'll be black and white, very dogmatic about things. And you think that's, that's slightly strange. I don't think they used to be like that. But then you might look at their timeline and look at the conversations they're in, and you kind of see that they've, maybe their personality is kind of adapted to that social media world. And they've, they don't have that kind of tolerance and ambiguity. You've got to decide which tribe you belong to, and then your views have to really be tightly fixed in with that group. Do you think that this is valid for how people behave in real life? Do you think is it is it could it could it be that it's just their online persona or is this also happening to people on the street? Are are people becoming edgier and more angry and more willing to lash out? Yeah, I, th I think it does spill over a bit into into real life, and you, and you, people are more on edge and. They're just less reflective and more kind of entrenched in their views. And you do see that come out quite often in conversations. But I mean, it's still fairly comparatively early days. This might be like, this might be a psychological effect that um, unravels over the next few decades and it will become more apparent as time goes on. The other thing, I, the other thing when I think about it, this is wearing a slightly different hat is um, Before I went into journalism, I, I studied history at university and because I loved it so much, I stayed on to do a PhD in uh, 17th century history. Something that I noticed is that a lot of the things, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the stuff that happens in modern online culture, even in social media, there's some kind of parallel for hundreds of years ago to the kind of Tudor and Stuart periods, 17th, 16th centuries in the in the kind of limited printed press that we had back then. So back in, back in that time, it was the, the dawn of the printing press and people for the first time could publish things. More and more people could read and there was like lots of pamphlets that would be shared around and things. But a lot of the stuff we see, a lot of the phenomenon we see happening now was that is actually paralleled back then. So things like um, gory descriptions of executions, fake news and pamphlets about, you know, news happening around the world about religious um, minorities being persecuted, um, tagging in pictures that kind of happened in, in portraits at that time so many so in some ways human nature hasn't changed even with this brand new technology probably the main overall difference is that it's just it's been democratized so instead of a small number of people in society being able to have this privilege now everybody you know it's every everybody really ha can have a smartphone can make a video can publish a video even we all have the ability to do that so it's 
And overall, I have to say, even though there are some downsides to that and we see some negative things, it's for us to do something positive with it because that is amazing that everybody in our society has the power to do that now and spread spread a story. So that's really interesting because you mentioned this idea of fake news, but also this idea that everybody can actually put a story that goes viral. But obviously, as journalists, you guys have a have a stronger responsibility to actually make sure that what you're what you're putting out there is accurate and a, an accurate reflection of what's what's happening. How do you find that balance between something that is real, but also you know fact checked to the point where people don't go and say, "Well, this is a prank." Um, So one big difference, obviously, when you do something for BBC News or any other big news organization, doesn't matter who it is, you're never doing the story yourself. So if I was like a vlogger or, I don't know, a regular member of the public just uploading something to YouTube or Twitter, they, I mean, no one really checks it. It's just up to them and they, and they put it up there. And it's quite different if you're a journalist because at least one other pair of eyes has to see what you're putting up there. And even beyond that, usually the idea has been commissioned in the first place. So you have to, you have to spend a bit of time pitching it, persuading other people it's a good story, going to make the story, showing it to the editor, if, if it's controversial, showing it to people in editorial policy. So there's a big process you have to go through and that can make a news organization more cumbersome compared to just, you know, a regular person on the street who's uploading a story that's about to go viral. But, you know, we have to have those mechanisms for um, for us to be a trusted news source over a period of time. And sometimes, you know, I think we've all seen this, there'll be a story that goes viral, uh, it could be anywhere, it could be, on, could be on LinkedIn, it could be on Facebook, and you just look at it and you think, hmm, that story, it's a, it's a really great story, but it almost sounds too good to be true. And a member of the public might have written that story um, with a, you know, just thinking this is going to warm people's hearts or this is a perfect story. And you kind of, no one's there to fact check it. You don't really know if it actually happened, but because it's come from a member of the public, you, you assume it's probably okay because they're not journalists. They might not have another motive, but their motive might just be that it's quite nice to make, to make something yeah. that goes viral. Right. Okay. So I'm going to turn the conversation now to um, a bit of what we do as planners. And uh, I want to ask you if you if you have a sense of advertising and um, um, uh, the role of advertising in people's life having progressed or, or, or changed from, from, let's say, 10 years ago. I suppose a big thing that everybody notices is that advertising on digital platforms, especially social media, seems to be more, actually not just social media, just on websites, basically, anything that's online is obviously tailored to you. And everyone's, you know, it's, it's so obvious that when you've been searching for something online, whether it's on Amazon or Google, that then the adverts that, are, that pertain to that suddenly pop up in your sidebars and things. So I think people are definitely more aware of that and lots of people talk about it and the question is at what point does that become insidious sort of slightly insidious and uh undermine the whole thing and become annoying or even kind of um upsetting to the to the viewer or to what extent you can kind of accept it and say well you know from my point of view i probably don't need to see an advert about you know female sanitary towels if it's not relevant to me if i'm just seeing stuff that's a bit you know i don't know tickets to see wicked in the west end because i searched for that two weeks ago maybe that's not such a terrible thing if it pops up in a sidebar so i think people have to, th to think about how it come how the stuff adverts come across and people are definitely more wary of it more or at least more aware of it 
you definitely see adverts now that will pop up in your social media feed. And of course they say, because they must say, you know, this is appearing here because it's a, a sponsored tweet or sponsored ad. So it's the extent to which adverts can be invisible in those situations and not uh, not become an annoyance. Thank you for that, Dougal. That was very interesting. Um, so for my last question today, I'd like to ask you for a bit of advice. So for people working in planning, understanding cultural shifts is essential, but we really don't have the privilege of being connected with the now as much as probably you are and as much as we'd like to. Sometimes we get accused of being closed in our own bubbles. So what would be your advice to people trying to use technologies to observe and interact with the world? My biggest piece of advice, and for me, this is just basically why I love being a journalist, but you just have to be curious about life around you. Not, I mean, just life as in your day-to-day life. So I'm talking about your commute to work, what you see in your lunch break when you're in the queue for, you know, at the restaurant, just to be curious about the life that's unfolding around you. Because the, a really great, from my point of view, a really great story might emerge because of a poster I've seen on a wall that's advertising something, an event that sounds really interesting. Or it might be about a pamphlet that's left on the side of a cafe that, again, is advertising um, a bizarre service or the meeting of a, of a group that you think, well, hey, that's a bit strange that, that they're doing that. It's looking out, it's having a, like a sideways glance all the time in your day-to-day life, just as a human being yourself, to work out what are the slightly strange things happening that are going to intrigue other people as well. All right. Thank you for that. Um, And I have to say, all of this has been fascinating. I'm sure we could talk for um, another 45 minutes if we wanted to. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, we look forward to seeing more of your work online and um, on the BBC. Thank you. Thank you, Dougal. So that was Dougal Shaw talking about how using his mobile has shaped the way he looks at the world, his subjects and his profession. And because we want to make a rule of summarizing these chats into a few actionable points at the end, here are some key takeouts from me. First, your mobile is not just a distraction, it's really your ally. Record, take photos, jot down notes, and record your own musics. Then, when you do research, keep your research open, allow the conversation to take you to an insight rather than looking for something specific, and keep looking sideways because ideas and inspiration come in all shapes and sizes. Thirdly, people's reactions to a piece of work may be the impetus for something completely new. And to get to the really good insights, be more like Louis Theroux, put people at ease by showing your imperfections. Finally, maybe we are more like 17th century Brits than we think. I hope you enjoyed that and stay tuned for more from the APG podcast soon.